Welcome to a, the Mon- oh my gosh, I can't even say this, Monarchcast, <laughs> a podcast about monarchy. Episode three, let's learn our name. Woo. I know, we'll get there, we'll get there. We're, you know, growing pains, growing pains. Yeah. It's fine. This is Monarchcast, not the Monarchcast, no matter how much yes. my brain wants to put that in there. Um, I know. And um, welcome back to our series on Queen Elizabeth. Well, I would second. interject there and argue that we are the monarchist, as in, like, the best. That's true. That's true. If you want to know about monarchy, come here and we'll yeah. pretend like we know. Yeah. Um, we, we don't know everything. We, I think let's, let's lead with our disclaimer as we do. So, disclaimer, we're not historians. We're coming from a place of interest. Although I think this time we don't really have any major royal oops to cover, so that's good. Am I correct on that? Yeah, I don't. I don't think we did anything horrible last time. <laughs> like awful. mixing up all the Charleses. <laughs> if we if we did, please let us know. Obviously, we'd like to correct ourselves, but um, from from what we can tell, we didn't say anything horrible last time. So progress already. We don't have Yay. to. We don't have to correct ourselves. That's great. So. I'm aiming for like a study improvement yeah. on every episode. Yeah, I think I think we can get there. Yeah. I don't know. I'm excited about this week. I think this is a an eventful 20 years in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. So um, um let's remind everyone who we are. Sure. Um I'm Allie. And I'm Claire. And we're just two interested American ladies swept up in the royal circus, I guess. Yeah. We like it. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. Um, you know, it's like almost midweek, which is always like a good time, you know? Like I like your optimism. I'm Yeah, here. well like you can kind of see the finish line. I don't know. Like it's Tuesday and I'm like, I can see the finish line. <laughs> we'll see. Talk to me tomorrow. We'll see how I feel. I'm like, it's Tuesday. Oh. I was the same like two weeks ago on the um for the holiday, like President's Day, and I was like, you know, when you come back from a long weekend, it's like you feel like it's going to be a short week and then it ends up being like the longest week of your life and I was so optimistic it was like Tuesday and I was like wow time's really flying and then it was Wednesday and then by Thursday I was just like god where is the weekend (laughs) so far so far away it's like that three-day work week is like too much you know like I just want to be the first country to adopt like a three-day work week and then like accept that like realistically, that's the amount of work most people are doing anyway. We could have permanent three-day weekends. 
that would be a great place to I mean, I would take that as a starting point, obviously. But we don't have to go to the, like, the four-day work week level of, like, that, you know, who's that guy who does all that stuff. But, like, I mean, I'll take a three-day work week, you know. Not four-day. What was it? Four-hour work week? Is that what he said? Did I say that? I, I just want to be like that lady from Downton Abbey. What is a weekend? Oh, yeah. What is that? <laughs> I, I'm living such a life of leisure that I, what is a weekend? The days just melt together. Oh, that's, yeah. that's the goal in life. That's how I feel whenever I'm, like, unemployed, which has been, like, once in my life. But it's, like, you do start to get to that point where you're, like, what is Monday? Do you think Queen Elizabeth feels that way? No, because I feel like every day is a work day for her. But that's her. what I mean. Like I, She's probably, like, what is the weekend? I'm just living Well, I don't know, life. because, like, I feel like for her, she must always be, like, very hyper-aware of what day of the week it is because she has to be. Because she's so scheduled. Exactly. Mm. Um... Okay, so you were telling me before we started recording that you had some gossip. Oh, I have some good royal gossip this week. So I have two. I have two things. Um, both of these items revolve around the I, upcoming wedding. Okay, I also want to clarify before we get into this, like, if, like, we are recording these a little bit in advance, so, like, this gossip is going to be, like, super stale. <laughs> I don't think so, because I think both of these things are going to be a little bit... It's going to be a little while before we know if it's true. But, you know, like last week we were talking about Queen Elizabeth um, attending the Vogue fa- oh, with that the was fashion show cool. with Anna Wintour. And it's like, it's cool, but it's like it was like, you know, two weeks old by the time it aired. So. Sure. Well, this is this week's royal gossip um, okay. for whenever that is. <laughs> Actually, these two items, I'm telling you. More speculation, I guess, than gossip. So the first piece. Both pieces have to do with the upcoming wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, American representative. Who dat? <laughs> um, so the first piece has to do with the fact that today, Tuesday, February 27th, took me a second, um, it turns out that all of the bookies have suspended betting on who's going to make the wedding dress. And I think this is interesting. Because there's been a rumor that it's going to be an Alexander McQueen wedding dress. And the reason this is interesting is, do you know? I do, but I'm not buying into this, so I don't want to acknowledge it. Yes. So the reason that's interesting is because Kate Middleton, Duchess of Cambridge, also wore Alexander McQueen. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is, do you think she would do that? Do you think anyone of them cares? Like, who cares? Like, you, Yes, yes. You know why I think they care? And the reason why I wanted to bring this up is this actually ties into tonight's theme of the press. And I think that if Meghan Markle walks down the aisle and Alexander McQueen, the next day on the front page of the newspaper is going to be who wore it better. And it's going to be Kate's Alexander McQueen and Meghan's Alexander McQueen and they're going to put them side by side and it is going to be an endless comparison and I feel like there is no way anybody would be inviting that kind of comparison in the press. Unless they're doing it with the idea to demonstrate that like because think about it like this isn't the only time this could happen like for the rest of their lives they're going to be comparing Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle together because that's what they've already been doing like naturally they're like you know they're like Kate went from, like, you know, fashion's it girl, like, you know, can do no wrong to, like, now she's, like, fuddy-duddy and, you know, unexciting because here comes Megan, like, 
you know, taking the mantle. And the press is already trying to play this narrative. And if I'm Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton, like, you've already acknowledged that that's always going to be the case. So, like, why not just prove that you're above it and you don't care and just get the designer you want anyway? I just think... Like, I honestly think, like, they they can't take a step correctly in this situation. Like, no matter if she chooses Alexander McQueen or if she chooses a totally different designer, they're going to compare them anyway. So, like, if Meghan Markle likes the Alexander McQueen designs the best, who I'm assuming it would be Sarah Burton designing, like, let her do it. And, like... I just think she didn't even get a phone call. That's what I'm saying. I just think when they made the shortlist, there's no way she was on there. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> we will find out. I, and that's why I wanted to bring this up because it's it's going to be fresh gossip forever because but we I think won't this know is until what, she steps out of the carriage on the wedding This is day. what I get really annoyed about, especially in the gossip angle of this, is like already pitting Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton against each other. But that's my and point like, is I don't think that they would even open that door. But the press is, so like I feel like... Well, it's the bookies. And I just want to know who... who came home from the hairdresser, told their buddy, who went to their friend, who, like, told their husband, who went to the bookie and was like, I heard a piece of royal gossip, and now all of a sudden the rumor is so frenzied that they're suspending betting. They're not taking any more bets. Maybe. I just feel like it's opening the door for, like, this narrative that I'm just not here for. Like, what? maybe they're not best friends, but that doesn't mean that they have to hate each other. I just don't think they wear the same designer. I, I just don't see I, that I, I just don't think it matters. No, like, but that's my point, is I just don't even think that they would open that door. Okay, second piece. I wish I knew what show it was. It was on the internet, and it was... I don't know the name of the show. It's one of those, like, view-type shows, but it's not The View. Um, it's, I, I don't think it was either one of those, but it was that kind of concept. But they had Mel B on there, and uh, or Scary Spice, for those of you not in the know. Um, and they said to her, uh, do you know anybody who's going to the wedding? And she was like, yeah, I'm going to the wedding. And then she was like, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't have told you that. And they were, so of course these women were all freaking out. And then, and then they asked her if the Spice Girls were going to perform at the wedding. And the look on her face was not a denial. And she said, I can't say anything. I'm going to get fired. And then they were like, oh my God, Spice Girls are performing at the wedding. And she just like threw her cards in the air and never once did she say, no, that's not happening. And then I remembered and I saw on the same website, they had pictures and like, you have to remember the princes were big fans of the Spice Girls. Yeah. And Meghan Markle and Victoria Beckham are like new best friends. Like, I just don't, I don't know if I believe it. Like, I also am like considering the source. Like, I like, maybe she's trying to drum up like, you know, excitement for this new tour that might or might not be happening. I could see them getting together to perform on a one-off deal at a royal wedding way more than I could see them reuniting for a tour. But like who wants the Spice Girls to perform at their wedding? I would oh my god, if I had that opportunity, if I was Meghan Markle and Prince Harry was like, I'm a big fan of the Spice Girls, I would be like Let's get them on the phone. But think Maybe about this. Like, perform. what song does the, do the Spice Girls perform at your wedding? Like, To Become One? Ew. Oh, my God. I was just going to say, To Become One. Or, or I mean, you got to get a little cheeky because they could just perform If You Want to Be My Lover. It's called Wannabe. And oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I don't – I just, like, cannot – I don't know. 
Well, we'll see again. We'll see what happens. But yeah, these are both items that are making me a little bit mad. But why? <laughs> I guess I mean, I there's no like, control over the gossip. <laughs> why does the Spice Girls performing at the wedding make you mad? It should make you excited and hopeful. Because I, I like, I don't know. It's just like not who I would imagine them choosing. Although I suppose the other alternative is they have like Ed Sheeran or something. So like that's just like cheese fest. So that's I mean, I like Ed Sheeran, but like, you know. The vintage quality of the Spice Girls is is. Well, I mean, yeah, they're cashing in on this, like, 90s nostalgia wave that's happening, like, her new friendship, apparently, with... Um, or maybe they just love the Spice Girls. Maybe when Harry was 10 years old, he was like, you know what? When I get married, I'm gonna have the Spice Girls. Maybe it's just been a lifelong dream. You don't know. Maybe. Maybe he was just waiting to spice up his life. <laughs> oh, my God. Spice up your life. That's the answer. That's the song. <laughs> Okay, well, anyway, that's all the gossip I have. I thought you'd enjoy that. I did. Uh, we I did also have, hated it. <laughs> we did have both of those CDs, by the way, and they were CDs. I, I also want to put out there that we did not own the first one. That was a Christmas gift for our father. We had, well, no, we had multiple versions. He yeah. was also, yes, he was a Spice Girls fan. He likes his pop music. All right, so... Shall we move on to the matter at hand? Speaking of the 90s. Speaking of the 90s. 80s and 90s, to be exact. So where we left off last time, we covered the beginning of Queen Elizabeth's reign, and we did focus a lot on the beginning and the impact that they had that, that had on her because, um, you know, as we mentioned, we're not terribly concerned with political events. Um, that's not the focus of this podcast. We're talking more of, like, the... Uh, interest that comes from being born into this role, the monarchy, so to speak. So um, along with that theme, um, moving into the 80s and 90s, I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion. Yeah, um, because like we want to talk about the rise of like the press like influence on the royal family. But I want to mention, first of all, something that um, I wanted to mention last time that I didn't, that I think was um, sort of a, I think at the end of the last episode, I kind of talked about how like the royal family themselves had invited some of this extra scrutiny, right? By just trying to modernize and keep with the times. And one thing that they did that was really interesting, but also kind of opened a door to the public was in 1969, they filmed a documentary for the BBC, um, called Royal Family. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it let like the BBC into, their lives for a period of time and like had more of a close-up view of the monarchy and I think afterwards some of the family members kind of regretted allowing that to happen but I think that was sort of this door that they cracked open and then the press just like barged through because you know they they let them in in a way that they never had been before but like that's what happens the problem when you set precedence of a little bit more openness is like everybody wants more right Right. So I think in the 80s and 90s, we kind of see the dark side of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in the 80s, it's really, really interesting. So um, the 80s was really the beginning of the press just going crazy um, in their coverage of the royal family. I think before that, you saw a press corps that was marked by um, a level of respect. They would maintain some distance. 
all the reporting was kind of sanctioned by the palace and um in the 80s it just became about sensationalism it became about access and I don't know if you know we could talk about there's different reasons but it was definitely an increase in scrutiny um intent I mean intense scrutiny intense media interest um the various papers in the UK the Daily Mail the Sun you know every Sunday they'd have a story splashed across the headlines and they didn't particularly care whether or not what they were saying was true it was just the public was interested it sold papers and and all of a sudden that became not necessarily okay but a much more common practice um they just grew a lot bolder. And, and, and I've, I've sort of thrown out a couple of reasons that I think this is, but I think I wanted to start with the first one is we're at the point now where we're 30 years in, right? Mm-hmm. We're 30 years into the reign. And I think if you take a, if you just take a look at that, you know, Queen Elizabeth, when she started, she was 25 and, um, nobody quite knew what was going to happen. You've got a 25 year old woman taking the throne, um, marked, you know, we talked about last time, post-World War II. I think it was probably a time of hopefulness. Everybody wanted to be very positive. Let's move the country forward. 50s, 60s, 70s were, there were a few hiccups, but overall, you know, you've got a young family, you're having kids, you're birthing heirs. The um, monarchy's um, next generation is in place. The continual permanence of the monarchy seems secure all of that is is great by the time you get to the 80s she's middle-aged her mm-hmm. kids are adults or getting there um and and I, and I think I think it's kind of that okay well you've been doing great for so long it's that 180 the press loves to do right they build you up and build you up and build you up and then all of a sudden it's like well where are your flaws let's tear you down and that's not to say she hadn't had negative press coverage before but I think maybe it was just kind of this even subconscious attitude of, well, we don't care anymore where, where you're not going anywhere. So let's just pick on you because you're there. Well, and I think um, the, the interesting thing, if you think about the beginning of her reign, you know, yes, she's this young, you know, beautiful queen and she's like this ingenue and um, everyone's kind of waiting with bated breath, like, what is she going to do? How is she going to handle this? Like, we have a woman on the throne and, you know, she's got a young family and this husband and, you know, there's sort of this fascination and then um, you kind of settle in. But I think also, you know, she became queen in 1952. So only, you know, like, um, basically like six years, right? six, seven years after the end of World War II. And the royal family during World War II really built up a lot of goodwill with the public because, you know, um, the princesses moved to Windsor, but they, as they got older, they, you know, um, they took part in what where they could, right? Like they're, um, like, I think Princess Elizabeth, like, took a course, like, learning to be a mechanic and, like, spent some time, you know, doing whatever the young woman's equivalent of the, or the young well-to-do women's equivalent of army service was, right? And um, King George and um, Queen Elizabeth, they they stayed at Buckingham Palace. Like, it, Buckingham Palace was famously bombed while they were there, and they barely escaped unscathed. And I think that selflessness of them not fleeing for, say, Scotland or elsewhere and putting themselves in the line of fire with the rest of the public really endeared them to the people and created this level of 
respect and admiration for the family that, you know, I think basically by the time you get to the 80s, it's 30 years on, there hasn't been another big, you know, um, public sacrifice, right? Like public effort. There's, you know, World War II is the last major entanglement that um, Britain is dealing with on a scale of, on a scale of a world war, right? So there aren't these opportunities to sort of rebuild that level of um, respect because even if they're not losing it, you know, it's like, it just kind of gets stale, right? There's no opportunity to kind of reclaim it or rebuild it. And Yeah, and I think the 80s, like going along with that, the 80s, I assume in Britain echoed a lot of what was happening in the United States at the time, but it was a time, a lot of growth, upward mobility. Um, you know, people were doing rather well for themselves and. Right. But I think also like, you know, and, in the way that. Then, Elizabeth then that's, and, that's when you typically look at your leaders and you feel like you can afford to take them down. Right. Peg. Right. And I think also the way that Elizabeth and Margaret were able to sort of step out as their own generation and endear themselves to the public, like, Charles and Anne, and to a, a different extent, Edward and Andrew, they were pretty young still, I think. Um, they weren't really doing that, right? Like, there wasn't... But, there, I mean, there wasn't a reason for them to do it. Like, there was no big call to action that they had to take part in. They just had to graduate from school and, you know, enjoy whatever expensive hobby they wanted to do, like polo, or I think Anne competed in the Olympics, in equestrian riding. Um, yeah, she did. Which I think runs in that family. So, yeah. Well, um, they all love horses. Yeah, but both her husband and her daughter also did the same. But um, I just think it was kind of like a bunch of rich people, like, you know, living their rich people lives. And I think by the 80s, you know, um, the tone had certainly changed a bit. Um, yeah. Because as we get into the 80s, we see the global economy start to suffer a little bit. So, and that's interesting because the other piece that I wanted to tie in there, and, and we're going to get to the big reason yeah. in a little bit, <laughs> but um, the other one I wanted to bring up was um, Margaret Thatcher. So Margaret Thatcher took office, um, she became prime minister in 1979. I don't, I don't know if I should say took office because I don't know if it's quite the same, but um, she became prime minister in 1979 and it was a time of... Um, increased racial, economic, and social tensions, and her policies were not always very popular. Um, from the reading that I did, I basically would just equate her with a Republican in what her policies were. It was a lot of fiscal conservatism. Her policies were maybe things that um, looked great on paper but didn't necessarily work in reality. Um, I don't know that she necessarily... It was. I gather it was a lot of, like, not not a lot of social justice, not a lot of handouts or no. It was fiscally care conservative. Of the poor. It was it right. was it was pull your own self up by your bootstraps kind of mentality that we would have here. Um, and and that's that's all I'm going to say about that because I I just not qualified to speak on British politics and arguably not American either. But um, the reason I bring that up is because you've got two women in power. Right. I mean, think about that. You have a female queen and a female prime minister. Um, and Well, they must hate of, each other, right? Of course, right. Of course the press uh, is Did one of them dare on to wear Alexander McQueen when the other one did, do you think? <laughs> oh, who knows? But my point is, like, 
think about that. Or just let's just like take a second and think about that for a second because you have you have two women ostensibly running the country and really running the country. You know, you've had a female queen for 30 years and you've had a female queen before, but always, always counterbalanced by a male prime minister. And for Mm -hmm. the first time you've got two women in power. And, um, I found this like really interesting quote that I wanted to read because I think it kind of explains the interest in the two of them. Um, and this is by, um, I believe Margaret Thatcher's biographer, John Campbell. And I, assume this was a sanctioned biography, but I don't know. Um, I just found this quote and I thought it was really interesting. So basically what he said was, one question that continued to fascinate the public about the phenomenon of a woman prime minister was how she got on with the queen. The answer is that their relations were punctiliously... Punctiliously? Yeah, yeah, I cannot say that word. Punctiliously correct. But there was little love lost on either side, meaning they were polite with each other, they were proper, but they didn't necessarily greet each other with, you know, happy giggles. Um, well, the that's queen's not, never That's not really a quote. That's my own aside. <laughs> that's an editor's note. Um, as two women of very similar age, Mrs. Thatcher was six months older, occupying parallel positions at the top of the social pyramid, one the head of government, the other head of state, they were bound to be in some sense rivals. Okay, but why? That's my own aside as well. Because they're women. That's why. Mrs. Thatcher's attitude to the queen was ambivalent. On the one hand, she had an almost mystical reverence for the institution of the monarchy. She always made sure that Christmas dinner was finished in time for everyone to sit down solemnly to watch the queen's broadcast. Yet at the same time, she was trying to modernize the country and sweep away many of the values and practices which the monarchy perpetuated. So what I really liked about this quote is there's multiple points in there that just assumes, well, of course they won't get along. They're gonna they're just they're gonna be rivals. It's two women, uh, they're one's a head of government, the other's head of state, and they're not gonna get along anyway. And of course, if they're women, it's just gonna be exacerbated and 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 Margaret Thatcher's whole thing was she's just trying to erase what the Queen stands for. And I just think no, nothing in there is substantive or definitive, but I think it just shows this attitude that you have two women in power, so they must hate each other. And just imagine the recipe for scrutiny that must have presented to the press. I mean, every little move was probably overanalyzed oh margaret's pissing off the queen or the queen it's the doesn't like magnifying margaret thatcher. glass that gets put up to every single woman in power i mean it's ridiculous like all they want is a cat fight between two women because god forbid two intelligent women actually get along or actually aren't best friends but perhaps manage to do their job anyway and who I mean, knows right because the queen is not going to be out there telling people oh i hate that bitch maggie you know she's not going to do that no and it's like just i mean but like nor should she i mean it's like she doesn't she doesn't elect the prime minister she deals with whoever comes in that door and i like to think that on some level she enjoyed having a woman in as the prime minister you know was recognizing probably that a breath of fresh air <laughs> yeah and also that you know like hey women can rule the other side of the you know the other side of the government too as well and oh and god a break from the mansplaining it was probably yeah. fantastic i mean this is but this is no different than what happens now i mean like you know 
whatever your thoughts of Theresa May as a leader, you know, the press is calling her out for her expensive leather pants. And yet all these politicians in parliament probably have like, you know, thousand dollar suits that they're wearing and no one cares. And it's like this, it's just another level of scrutiny that gets applied to women in power just because like, if women have to be in power and as men, they have to deal with that, then they have to find a way to kind of take them down a peg, right? Or make it, you know, that they're not professional in some way or that it's some personal thing because, you know, women are hysterical and can't possibly, you know, do this heavy lifting that men can do. Right. Um, I, so I just, I think all of that. I don't really together... want to talk about this anymore because I feel no, like I'm going to go off gonna, on a rant. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to sum it up by saying that I just think that um, that was probably maybe an unrecognized catalyst for the increased press attention because that situation had never happened before. Well, I think also, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was kind of the face of this government that a lot of people, I mean, it's not that she wasn't, I don't want to know if I want to say popular. I mean, but she was prime minister for a long time considering, you know. But she had a lot of unpopular policies. Right. So I think part of that was, you know, her relationship with the queen as the queen sort of this um i don't want i don't know if i want to say like the moral check on the government but she's she acts as some sort of check on the government right? right so when you have margaret thatcher and then you have the queen in her role of dealing with government and then you have a government that's maybe instituting policies that are not necessarily making life better for a lot of people at a time when life is getting harder i think that's going to invite press interest no matter what like oh margaret thatcher did this what does the queen say because right. you know the the queen is supposed to be there for the people in some way right um, i just think the very nature of like the scrutiny that margaret thatcher invited just carried over to the queen no i think you're right i think that's a consideration um but i think we're ignoring probably the biggest yes i'm saving that for last yeah. so I think the big one, and and this isn't going to become a Princess Diana episode, but Princess capital Diana. Capital B, capital D. <laughs> yes, elephant in the room. So she came on the scene in 1981, and I think with that, with her arrival, came a massive, massive increase in interest from the press because she was a breath of fresh air. I mean, she came on. She was. Oh, I want to say 19 when yeah, she met 19. Prince Charles and or when she started dating him. And Charles was not that interesting. And, you know, like like we mentioned before, the Queen and Philip and Margaret and all of the whole gang had been around for a while. And, and it was just kind of same. They're all known old. quantities. Yeah. Exactly. And here comes Princess Diana, and she was she was green. young, green, she was beautiful, beautiful, and and would engage the press in a yeah. way that no one else did. And part of that was her naivety, and I think part of that was just she had this natural charisma that they ate up, and and she encouraged the interest to a certain extent, and they to went a, nuts to a large extent. I mean, sure. I mean, in the beginning, I think it was. I think I think towards the end of her life, she certainly had some 
powerful press manipulation skills that she used to great effect. But I think in the beginning, it was all raw natural ability. She just liked the attention and she encouraged them and she drew them in with her charisma. And, and, And they came in droves and her engagement to Prince Charles... Her um, marriage, subsequent marriage, the interest just for the next decade was Princess Diana, Princess Diana, Princess Diana, and um, the whole family felt it as a result. Um, good and, and, and bad, I, yeah. Good and bad, good and bad. But I think I think she was, for lack of a better word, a star. And you know, I we were you and I were pretty young when she died. Um, but I remember, I knew who Princess Diana was my well, whole I think, life. I think everyone did because, you know, the months leading up to her death, she was in the news quite a bit. But and even before that, you know, you would just see pictures of well, this you know, I mean, blonde kind of lady like, on TV and she just yeah. seemed, she was pretty. She was a princess. It was, you know, I remember, I remember you when you, you and I, we went to, um, England for the first time with our family. And I remember we were staying at the hotel and there was a magazine on the table, and our mother, I, I don't know if you were there, but I remember this, and she flipped open the picture, and there's Princess Diana, and she said, oh, look, Claire, like, that's a princess. Oh, really? And, yeah. And I, remember <laughs> I don't thinking, think I was like, there for that. <laughs> I just remember being very mad that she was wearing normal clothes and not a ball gown. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, because in my head, princesses were always wearing ball gowns and tiaras, but I remember thinking, ooh, she's pretty. Like, you know, it's just... She, she looked, uh, aside from the fact that she was wearing the wrong clothes, she looked totally like a princess to me. So I just think that um, she, you know, she captivated the entire world and the scrutiny came with her. Um, and before we get to the 90s, because that was when Princess Diana's impact was truly felt, um, you know, in the 80s, it was uh, 1981, she started dating Prince Charles and they were engaged, if not I believe 1982 married married in 1982 and I think they got engaged in like instantly basically. it was quick it was yeah. quick and so the beginning because basically of the 80s, what it was was you had had up until this point this quest of like who is Charles going to marry we must find Charles a wife and you know all of his choices were not considered correct like he right. was in love with Camilla Parker Bowles and you know couldn't marry her and um because she wasn't, cons- she was considered, she had been, let's say she was too experienced. She'd was been the, around the block. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She had had boyfriends and um, so she wasn't considered a correct choice. So along comes this young 19-year-old girl and, uh, you know, the, the family must have been saying, finally, like, you know, what's wrong? She's beautiful. She's nice. Like, just go for it, you know, and um, so they did. And then you have everything that comes after that, you know, the whole, the wedding and the the press around the wedding and, and the, the whole kids spectacle come and right then, away right and then having not only one son but two you know in quick succession so you've got that duty out of the way right you've got i hate this but the heir and the spare if you will and um you know it's like the perfect from afar the perfect little royal family so yeah. i think a lot of the press coverage was there but i think it was mostly positive and then you know as you move to the end of the decade and into the 90s, the cracks start to show. Right, right. Um, because and it's not a time where you can hide these things anymore, right? Like we've, we've talked about the increased scrutiny and with that comes this ever-present need to keep feeding the beast, right? You need more and more and more. More access means the desire for more access and 
and you know when the polite little photo ops no longer do it then you start digging and you find out like hmm well these people are people <laughs> well and it's i think it's the first time that the um the family and you know queen elizabeth that's the head of that family she has to sort of adapt right because that increased scrutiny leads to it's not just the media you know it's the public is reading those papers and they want more. They're buying the papers and they're eating up the stories. And it's it's the first time she had to really answer for herself um, and, 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 and her extended family. And, um, I, you know, I don't know that you could say the 50s, 60s, or 70s, anything like that really happened. Um, you know, Margaret got divorced in 1978. And I'm sure it was a big scandal, but, you know, I don't think they impact of that was really felt in the way that the press scrutiny that happened in the 80s and 90s was felt by the family. I mean, and you can see the impact of that today in the way that they deal with the press. Um, it was just kind of like the walls that were up, the cust- the barriers that were there as a result of custom were just no longer important. And the um, adapt, the adapt, what do I want to say, adaptability, the willingness to adapt or unwillingness to adapt had a long, had a lasting impact. Um, You know, even... I think Margaret was a great trailblazer for modernizing some of these attitudes in the family, you know? Like, she very much played the role of modern woman, right? Mm -hmm. And I think by the time she's getting divorced and sort of setting that precedent for the rest of the family no one cares anymore, right? Because it's the 70s and people get divorced all the time and it's kind of like, eh, like, yeah, who cares? Sure, I mean, it wasn't the scandal it would have been, but I, uh, it's more just that, you know, with increased scrutiny comes increased increased questions by the public. And I, I just think it's interesting that, um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that around this time is when the Queen started paying taxes, <laughs> No, I mean, I there mean was, think about the fact she never paid taxes, and well, all of a sudden they had they published all these, um, I guess exposés on how wealthy she actually was, and the fact that she wasn't paying taxes but was receiving taxpayer dollars. Well, no, really so this is deal. a this is kind of a misconception about the royal income that it's taxpayer dollars. It, it's not really because it's this deal that they worked out with, I forget which monarch, but long before Queen Elizabeth's time, where the income that they get is actually revenue off of lands that are owned by the royal family, but the money is put in a trust held by the government, and then the government doles out a salary from that trust. But it's all, the money itself all comes from land holdings owned by the royal family. But if you think about it, it's not what at all does that shocking. Mean? Are we talking about land owned personally or land owned as a result of holding that title? Well, let me, so this is where I'm getting to. So it it is land owned as a result of holding that title, like, you know, um, all of these various dukedoms and all the stuff that they have, you know, I mean, this is what, like, England used to be essentially a hierarchy based on land ownership, right? And at the very top, you've got the king. Right. At the very top, you've got the king. And then you've got the aristocracy, which are basically you know, for lack of a better term, the landed gentry, which means you've got titles and with your titles, you're gifted this 
you know, plot of land. And by plot, you know, we're talking acres and acres and all this stuff. And these are the people that, you know, and then people work that land and you tax those people and you get money and that's where your income comes from. And it's a system that's still very much in place, you know, like earldoms and all of this stuff. But at the top of that, you've got the queen now who has, in, who has inherited all of these land holdings due to the fact that they belong to the royal family and to that title. But the money that comes from it is like it's held in a trust that's managed by the government. And in the 80s and 90s, they do this like series of audits of the finances and working with the government because there is an increased public scrutiny to like where this money is coming from and how much is being given to the family and to whom and like Yes, the taxes they did agree to pay because that was a little bit of an antiquated holdover that I think everybody realized, okay, in modern times, people are not going to be okay with the queen not paying taxes. But this, I, there's this idea that like their, their jobs are publicly funded, but not really. Like most of that comes from their, their income from like, they're just their, their holdings, So it's kind of a, like, but people get this idea that it's publicly funded because it comes from, like, it is publicly managed by the government. Um, And throughout the years, there's been different, um, you know, changes to the structure. Like, I think certain lower level members of the family have agreed to stop taking an income. Um, Like, I think Edward and Sophie don't get an income. I think they do now, Mm, but they're not going to. Maybe, maybe, or maybe there's an agreement as to when they'll stop. I'm not sure. Um, I don't think that Beatrice and Eugenie get incomes. So it's basically as the family expands, you have to kind of cut back on who gets an income because then it becomes unmanageable. Yeah. Like the finance, the family's finances, like just, or expenses just balloon essentially. Well, um, and anyway, I mean, that's my tangent on the, <laughs> the state of the royal family. But yeah, the big deal was the big um, scandal was that they weren't paying taxes. Right. And yeah. and I don't know that any of that would have been made public if the press hadn't felt so emboldened to come yeah. after the family. I mean, this um, is something that I think every 10 years they work out with the parliament is like the family income. It's just not usually given that much scrutiny. So yeah. to sum up, you know, I think the 80s just kind of ushered in this period of we, we're going to we're going to write whatever we want about you and we don't care how it looks and when you know this lack of respect by the press and um what I'm trying to do here is usher us into the 90s because I think that's when it got really ugly um and I'm going to start with and you're going to have to forgive my latin I did not take latin in school but the annus horribilis well Elizabeth kind of fudged her Latin, too, because that's not actually what that means. <laughs> okay. She was trying to call it, like, her terrible year, but I think it – I forget what the actual translation is, but it's, like, that's – I think to actually – what she wanted to say was um, – you know, I want to look this up because she actually screwed up her Latin as well. Okay. Well, then I feel better. We're in yeah. good company. Um, but anyway, this was 1992, and, and it's what she referred to as her horrible year. So I'm just going to give you a quick summary that I found, which I think is just ridiculous. Okay, now let's just take a step back and remember this family is all about tradition. They're all about um, 
propriety. They conduct themselves to a certain standard. You do not give any way. I, I think I'm going to say, what's, what is it? Never complain, never explain. I think that's a really good way of summing it up. You just, you don't give anybody anything. You've, you've suffered through a decade of the press just analyzing your every move and trying to find any dirt that they can. And here's what happened in one year. Okay, so in March, her second son, Prince Andrew, and his wife, Sarah, and this would be uh, Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York, so the Duke and Duchess of York, separated. In April, her daughter, Princess Anne, the Princess Royal, divorced her husband, (laughs) Captain Mark Phillips. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's just crazy. Um, There was a state visit to Germany in October that ended with angry demonstrators in Dresden throwing eggs at the Queen. And then in November, a large fire broke out at Windsor Castle and burned, I believe, a huge portion of the castle. And that's her favorite castle. So that was pretty bad. And then finally in December, Charles and Diana separated. And they, um, and then at the end of the year, the sun, and I just put this in because it just sums everything up perfectly. The newspaper, The Sun, published the Christmas speech two days in advance, which is just, the disrespect of that is crazy. Um, and and that all of that happened in one year, and it was all covered extensively in the press. And by the end of the year, the poor lady was just so beaten down. And this is 40, this is, should have been her 40th anniversary on the throne. And instead she's having the worst year of her life. Um, and I think all of those instances, you know, were, I just mentioned were covered extensively, but I think they all just kind of represented the fact that, you know, at this point, all they want to do is just get back to normal. Right. And it's just one thing after another, after another. And zeroing in on Charles and Diana again without turning this into the war of the Waleses. Um, but they had been having marriage difficulties as early as 1985 reported in the press and it just kept getting worse and worse. You know, when you talk about the fact that they're supposed to keep this wall up and not give anything away, it just it did not go that way. Um, so Charles and Diana both had affairs. Um, there was a book called Diana, Her True Story, which she contributed to, which was a major no-no. And then on top of that, there were two, these are funny, there were two scandals where there were leaked phone conversations that were published. Um, the first was, I'm going to laugh, Squidgy Gate, which <laughs> was between Diana and a friend, James Gilby, talking about um, the royal family, and she was just complaining, and you know, she was just saying all the things I do for this family and they, they just don't appreciate it. And, and it was, um, more scandalous due to the fact that she was venting to a friend and it was just all the transcripts were published and, you know, the press really got a peek inside the, um, ugly side of what was going on between Charles and Diana. And then the second one it was Camilla Gate, which was a... Gross. I don't want to talk about that conversation. I'm just going to say it was an <laughs> intimate conversation between Camilla and Charles. Um, and the reason that was important was Camilla was, at the time, Charles's mistress, or one of. And um, it, it, it was all caught on tape, 
you know, I think it's one thing to report in the press that he's got an alleged mistress. It's another to have a recorded conversation of them engaging in quite intimate conversation. So all of this, I mean, all of this happened. Well, um, and there was not to throw one person under the bus here, but there, there was an element of, you know, Diana was able to kind of capitalize on this public adoration of her that really didn't help the matter that much with the royal family because, you know, she would go to the press and she would complain about being victimized by the royal family. And, you know, and I think there is a lot to the fact that I just, by all indications, she did not have the personality to deal with being a member of this highly public family. Um, But she would, you know, complain about this. And then she would turn around and give... um, all access interviews to like, you know, um, the BBC or, you know, different, um, news outlets that was something that just like wasn't done in the family, right? Like you don't just give interviews and you don't air your dirty laundry and do all this stuff. And so I think for a very private family, it was a little bit strange to have her casting them as villains and then have her committing these huge royal no-nos, you know. Yeah, it's bad um, enough that all the queen's children are getting divorced. Yeah. But that the other hand, you have you have one of these divorces turning the entire family into a soap opera. Exactly. And I think that was something where it's like I'm not trying to say like she wasn't. I mean, I'm sure her life was extremely difficult, but at the same time she was making it harder. You know, right. like complaining about the attention and the the intrusive press, but at the same time inviting them in and airing, you know, all the secrets and, um, you know, and just not playing by the rules, I guess. Um, and it was all, it was just all too much, you know, and, and, and like I said, you know, we don't want to turn this into the Diana show, but but I think think her impact on the family just, and, and on Queen Elizabeth's reign, you just can't, you can't underscore it enough. It's, it was this, hurricane for lack of a better word and um you know by 1995 Charles and Diana are getting a divorce right and and it doesn't stop the press coverage just continues Mm -hmm. and continues and continues and I think if you you know if you read biographies of the queen and you read biographies of Diana the um theme is there of the queen and philip especially they're trying to contain it they spend so much time trying to contain it well they were really trying to like counsel their kids as like on their marriage problems and their i think that was it i think it was you know as far back as 1985 they were having problems and i think by that by 1992 they were divorced not divorced um separated and um you know it wasn't even so much of, okay, please try to work it out. It was, please try not to embarrass the family any more than you have. And they, right. I mean, that was the evolution. Yeah. They just couldn't contain. And uh, eventually they just gave up and said, you know what? It's done. It's, it's cleaner if you just get divorced. Well, I think Um, it was ultimately like, you know, the first instinct is please just try to work it out. I mean, you've got kids like do whatever and then it's okay. You can't work it out. Well, it's better for everyone if you separate and then you see what the separation turns into of like the war of the press and all of this stuff. And it's like, please God, just make it stop. Like, I think, I think honestly they were probably hoping that they could just live separately. 
Yeah, I think that was the plan because, you know, if as long as they're just separated but not legally divorced, you don't have to deal with the question of titles and, you know, all of this um, stuff that they ended up having to work out and negotiate. But I think also it's like that didn't work because that wasn't enough. And I think, you know, you must get to a certain point where I can't imagine the queen just looking at all of her children and saying, what is wrong with you? Like, (laughs) what have I done? Like, can you just behave? Because like the nineties was them all basically just imploding. Yeah. Um, I think Edward's the only one that that's when Edward got married though. Yeah, but he's the only relatively stable one, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it just, all of this just led to this hounding of the press and I think you know she says that was 1992 was her horrible year but I think she probably refers to it as her decadus horribilis and I'm sorry, whatever I just, made, <laughs> I just made up some Latin but um it's just if, if you read anything about the royal family in the 90s I don't think you read anything about the queen you just read well, you just not read until Charles Diana, Charles Diana, Charles Diana, and the Queen's really mad. That's well, those are the headlines. Until you get to the end of it, which you sure. know, the only thing that really ended all of this circus was sadly Diana's death, um, which was directly or indirectly, you know, contributed to by the press. Um, depending on who you ask, they killed her or at least heavily contributed to her death. Um, I think there's no argument that she was trying to escape the paparazzi at the time that she died. Um, But that's the only thing that really stopped it was, you know, this one last horrible thing that happens. And then I think that was kind of this wake up call for everyone of like, this is how bad it can get. And yeah, but even that was, uh, I mean, that was um, a huge issue for the queen. I mean, have you ever seen the movie, the queen? Yes. And that's all about Diana's death in the aftermath. And But I mean, I'm saying like I'm including that whole two weeks afterwards of, you know, the queen trying to contain this family tragedy and the public and the press asking for her to make it. Well, I think that was public. a turning point, right? That's right. when she arguably gave up the old ways. I mean you know, she wanted to keep the morning private and they were criticized for keeping the boys with them away from the public. And then the public was mad that the flag was flying at half mast. I will never ever understand that because... Well, it was just this like, it, it, they couldn't do it right. They couldn't mourn correctly. You know, the, the, the flag wasn't flying at half mast and the public was upset about that. I mean, think about the fact that the day before the funeral, the queen did a live television broadcast the only other time she ever does that is at Christmas right and it was just this response to the public frenzy she was literally driven to address her public which when was the last time that a monarch was driven to do that if it wasn't a state occasion or a war you know she had to go on tv and and perform her grief for the public to appease them. Right, which is in some ways in some ways understandable in that Diana was a very public figure and her death hit a lot of people extremely hard, but also in some ways it's like I side with the royal family in that they're a family that experienced this tragedy and these boys are, you know, 12 and 15 or however old they were and 
why do you need to trot them out in front of the public? Like, that's probably the last place they want to be is in front of all of these people, you know, screaming out at you and crying and reminding you every second that you've had this horrible thing happen to you. And yet they're taking it from you and making it about them in this way that like had to be awful. And I understand the queen's instinct to keep them sequestered. I mean, it's like, why would you want to do that? But you also could argue that in doing that, she hid herself away in a manner that perhaps she shouldn't, not saying she shouldn't have, but that only angered the public. Yeah, I mean, when all was said and done, she completely capitulated to what they wanted. And we're talking, I mean, we're talking about that point, Princess Diana was not a member of the royal family anymore. She had yeah. a title, but she, she was divorced and there from was, Charles. And there was a reason they didn't initially put the flag at half-mast, and I think it has something to do with tradition of, like, there were only very specific circumstances they, in they which they do would it. do that. Yeah, yeah they, they just don't. don't. Do it. Um, um, and it's... It's just interesting to me that, you know, what, with this whole conversation we've been having about the 80s and the 90s, and it's this increased demand for accessibility and this increased demand for accountability, emotional accountability, and that 20-year period essentially culminates with the queen saying, okay, you can have me. Well, I think, me. so there's this great footage of the queen and Philip walking out in front of Buckingham Palace um, with the boys, I think, right after um, after this week, of, you know, like after a few days and had capitulated kind of to the public. And they were really nervous about it because the tension in the air, you know, the anger was pretty real. But also I think that that was the first time that they realized the extent to which the public was grieving. Um, and I think to see that, they kind of understood a little bit of the situation, whereas before, you know, they had kind of been sequestered up at, um, in Scotland and not really, you know, sort of hearing about it, but not really witnessing what was going on. And I think to see all of the flowers and the, the gifts left at the gate and the, the crowds outside crying and everything, I think that was really the big wake up call where they said, okay, like, I think I get it now. Um, and you're but right. You don't I think, think that, that had ever happened before. Like, why do you think this time they said, okay, fine, we'll do what you want. We'll do it your way. Because I think this was the first modern royal tragedy. Like- exactly. That's what I'm getting at. It was modern. It was coming at this time when people felt like they had more access than ever before and they were demanding an increase in access and they were demanding. It right, was, but that's what I'm no saying is I think... this queen up in her castle. It was, no, she, she we pay... You know, this going back to the taxes, like we pay for your lifestyle, whether or not that's actually they, true. They that's don't. how they feel. <laughs> but that's how they feel. Yeah. And but, it was this you owe us, not we owe you. It was you owe us. And I think yeah. that's a real switch, a real switch in the public attitudes towards the institution. Well, I think, of the, I think, well, I'm, um, I'm mostly agreeing. I'm mostly agreeing with you in that I think that was the turning point of where then they began to understand what in the ni- in the 90s it meant to the public to have a queen. Like, you are the queen of us you, and you serve us in a way, in this way versus the old way. Um, and I do agree that there was a turning point after that of, you know, um, the queen kind of seemed to relax a little bit, you yeah, know. Yeah, I think um, she kind of just was like, okay, you know what, I'm not going to put the pressure of tradition on my shoulders well, in, so heavily. In some ways, how stifling must that have been? Like to be constantly formal, constantly correct, constantly trying to 
follow protocol and all of this stuff. And kind of maybe this was a wake up call of, you know, some of that stuff is nice to continue, but some of it has to, it has to change. Yeah. I just think that you see a real evolution and I think that that's what she's done right from the very beginning, yeah. you know, but was- I also think that that signaled a shift with the press as well. Like the press had kind of gone crazy in the eighties and nineties. And I think, you know, taking the blame for the death of Diana sort of shocked everybody back into line in a way where you've got more access than before, but at the same time, it's making sure it's on everybody's terms. Like, you know, um, we can talk about this next time, but like when the boys were growing up, you know, they negotiated photo ops, you know, it was like, you leave us alone and we'll give you this once a year. When we go skiing as a family, you can take as many photos as, as, as you want and we'll do a little interview with you or we'll occasionally grant interviews. But the rest of the time, like you leave us alone, you know? Yeah. I just think it was sort of this, it all peaked and then they all just kind of reacted in their way. And as you move into the millennium, which you just alluded to, is going to be our next episode on Queen Elizabeth and this modern queen. Um, it's a give and take, probably more so than you'd ever seen before. Um, this idea that it's a it's a relationship, um, not a, it's not one sided. It's it's, it's a you, negotiation. It's no, you owe us respect and we owe you access. And that's a delicate balance that they continue to try to play. And I think both sides still sometimes get it wrong. But the fact that the family, I mean, like, you know, again, going back to 1952 when Elizabeth took the throne, the press arguably in some ways was just as rabid. But um, there was still this air of mythology and... um, mystery around the throne and I think what we were just talking about you know after you've been on the throne for 50 years the mystery kind of fades away because you've been there for so long and the people start to feel like they own you and I think that balance of how how do you how do you fit into that role without alienating people with maintaining your own sanity when the press just feels every decade that they can have more and more and more and more of you how does that work i think the answer is just brightly colored outfits <laughs> yes yeah that seems to be her current strategy so she does um, love a nice lime green suit yeah but you know why she does that yeah, so everybody can pick her out in a crowd. Absolutely. She wears the most garish thing imaginable so that she's always visible. I think she just has a thing for magenta. Yeah. But anyway, so that's what we're going to talk about next time is just how all of these decades have led up to now and the present. And, um, you know, we're approaching the end of the next 20 years of the reign. And this is a modern world. How does a, how does a queen fit into it? And um, especially an aging queen, one who's been on the throne longer than anyone else. So um, we're going to talk about that next time. We hope you're enjoying this. Um, You know, I hope you weren't hoping to join us and get a rundown of historical facts because I think we've been pretty clear that's just not what we're here for. But um, we're more interested in the woman and the impact behind the crown and um, how does wearing a crown affect you. 
You know what I was thinking about, speaking of The Crown? Oh, yeah. Um, do you think that for the episodes where they they do the 70s, do you think they're going to get Meryl Streep to play Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> How awesome would that be? She's maybe. already doing TV now, so maybe she'll go to Netflix. Maybe. She only has to be in a couple episodes. I know. Hmm. That's a good I feel question. Like they should do it. <laughs> they have to pay her probably like an entire season's budget. Yeah. Hashtag streep for the crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can come up with a better one. Yeah. But well, it's funny we didn't we didn't talk about the crown incessantly this week because they're not there. They yet. haven't done it yet. So, um, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they come to us for our notes. I think we did an excellent job of that historical mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's all. So that's all we've got for the eighties and nineties. You know, I think it's it's impossible to talk about the eighties and the nineties and Queen Elizabeth reign without talking about Princess Diana. Um, no, but and we will eventually get more into her. I think she warrants her own series, if you will. I mean, she was fascinating in her own right um but yeah for now so next time we'll be doing the millennium and ushering in her series of jubilees i believe she had she had her golden jubilee and she had her diamond jubilee right so yeah. or no and golden was in the jubilee which one was no golden was 25 right yeah she had her oh, she had a i thought she had a couple jubilees in well the, she had diamond in 2012 yeah, that was the but big didn't one. she do one like in two thousand two, maybe or? Um, yeah, I just don't remember what they are. Yeah, to be looked up at a different time. Yeah, well, um, well maybe we can do a rundown of those next week. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, so until then, um, I guess we'll be meeting back here next week to talk about the odds. So uh, the OOs, as the I like OOs, to call OOs, the OOs, the OOs. <laughs> I, I, yeah. 18 years in, what, is that, what the hell do we call those? Um, anyway, uh, I'll talk to you next time. All right, cheerio, darling. No. <laughs>